0: Comes from Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen, until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A couple of Wednesdays ago in our ninth grade confirmation class, while we were talking about why we worship the way we do, why we follow these ancient patterns and go back and forth from singing to listening to speaking to praying to standing and sitting and standing and sitting and standing and sitting, A lot of questions about that. And then sometimes the pastor makes you stand for an extra long time at the beginning. In the midst of all of that, we watched a short video in which a pastor was talking about these patterns of worship. And she said that someone had told her once, Church isn't perfect, it's practice. She said, We're practicing this kingdom that God has set up, and it's uncomfortable and beautiful and healing. That phrase has stuck in my mind for those, these last few weeks. Church isn't perfect, it's practice. The first part of that is not hard to get. You don't have to be around any church for very long to know church is not perfect. We human beings are pretty famous for being not perfect, and so it makes sense that anything we try to do together, as well-meaning as it may be, is never going to be perfect. So, right, church isn't perfect, but It's practice. And that has been in my head. What does it mean to say that church is practice? Our practice with the Bible is often to read it as if we are trying to wrestle a single meaning out of it. One of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, talks about this. She says, if you give us a passage of scripture in the church, we will put on our thinking caps and do our best to decipher the symbols, read between the lines, and come up with the encoded message. She said, we treat the Bible often like it's a suitcase, and we just have to rummage around to find the meaning in it. I suspect that today's story, the Transfiguration, is one of the stories that just will never quite settle for being treated like that. It's not so much about explaining the one thing that it means, as it is about an experience a very strange, otherworldly experience, almost a heavenly experience of meeting the divine on top of a mountain and, by the way, feeling totally terrified as a result. Perhaps you have had an experience like that, of encountering God in some way in your life, and you still can't explain or understand it, even if maybe it was years ago. If so, this story tells you that you are in good company it also reassures you that even after 2,000 years, you still might not understand what it is that happened to you. On the other hand, some of us read the story of the transfiguration and we, th- we think about the fact that we haven't had anything like that happen to us in our lives. We haven't met God in a shining moment <coughs> of glory and we sometimes wonder, well, what does that mean then? Am I missing something? Why hasn't that happened to me? This story, the transfiguration story, comes at a turning point in a couple of ways. One, it's a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Before this, things have been going pretty well for Jesus. He's feeding people, he's healing people, he's teaching people, and for the most part, he's well thought of in the community. His reputation as this intriguing, holy person is growing. It's as if he's been heading up a mountain Everything is going up, 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 going well, and it all culminates in this moment where he cracks open on a mountaintop, glowing like the sun. So hard for humans to describe that the best we could come up with, and I love this detail, is that he was brighter than any bleach we could use for our clothes. (laughs) Really? That's the metaphor? Okay. But things begin to crumble pretty quickly after that. It's all gone so well, and now, as Jesus heads back down the mountain first, he tells his disciples not to tell anybody about what they've seen, which is an odd thing. And that by the time they get back into town, Jesus has persisted in telling them that to be this Messiah, the beloved of God, as the voice on the mountain said, means to suffer, to be betrayed. To die. His followers start to argue among themselves about what that means and what it means for them, and they particularly begin to argue about how they're going to be able to know which of them is the best. And Jesus promptly tells them that it is their job to put themselves last in line, not first. Then he begins to criticize the rich people, and he says that children are going to go into the kingdom of God while the rich men stay outside the gate like a camel on the wrong side of a needle. Finally, Jesus marches into Jerusalem, not on a royal beast, but on a donkey. He keeps on being too political, and as he promised, he ends up crucified outside the walls of a city like a criminal, like a terrorist who is bent on destroying the empire. At least one thing we do learn in the transfiguration story is that God can be found in amazing, shining, beautiful moments in our lives. God can still surprise us and illuminate us and break us open in ways we never thought possible. But everything around the transfiguration story tells us that God is just as real and just as present in the long, slow walk up the mountain and that hard, hard path back down. And that, after all, is how we spend most of our lives. On a day-to-day basis, most of us do not live on top of the mountain. Whether we are heading up or down, most of our days are spent somewhere in between, where the laundry is not nearly so clean. The everyday, ordinary moments going up and down can seem a lot less holy, a lot less godly, Even to us, a lot less important. But when we begin to think that, maybe we need to look at this transfiguration story again and catch a glimpse of the larger practice around it, which is about going up and down and up and down and up and down, one step at a time. Where would you say you are on the mountain? Maybe you're on your way up. Maybe you're starting out in your career or looking forward to a new chapter, a new job, to college, to high school. And although it's exciting, you also might have that little voice in your head which whispers to you on a daily basis that you do not know what you are doing and someday everybody will find out. Or maybe you're in a new relationship of some kind, walking that early footing of figuring out how much you can trust each other. Maybe you're making your way up the long, slow road of parenting, immersed mostly in just trying to sleep, trying to eat, having more conversations about the bodily functions of small people than you ever thought was possible. Or maybe you're making your way up the long road of retirement, trying to figure out now who you are, who you will be, that the alarm clock doesn't have to go off in quite the same way every day. There are times when we are heading up into things, when the view gets better and better, and we are looking forward to what lies ahead. Maybe, on the other hand, you are way on your way down the mountain. Maybe you've had to leave behind something that was good and holy and meaningful. Maybe you are putting one foot in front of the other in the midst of grief over the loss of a loved one or a relationship or a job. Maybe you're trying not to fall through the cracks in the middle of a divorce. Maybe you're walking through the fear of a diagnosis, or the exhaustion of anxiety, or the burden of a treatment that is just as draining as the disease. Maybe some days you feel like your life is just skidding downhill, and you have no idea where the bottom is. All of us have been someplace on that mountain, on the way up and on the way down, Some days, sometimes both in the same day. And every once in a while, we get to rest in that glory at the top. Probably the only way we can go wrong with the transfiguration story today is to assume that it tells us that Jesus, that God is most present, most real, most holy, and most for us only on top of the mountain and somehow less every place else. Whatever else this transfiguration story means for us, I can say with certainty, that's not it. Maybe like church, transfiguration isn't about perfection. Maybe it's about practice. Maybe it's about practicing recognizing the God who is with us every step of the way up the mountain and every faltering step down. Maybe we get today a vision of Jesus who's gone ahead of us into the most beautiful moments we will have and the most awful ones we will know. And maybe we can actually put that into a practice. So today, on your way into this room, I hope you received a little card, a little square card that has the word Alleluia in a circle, in an endless circle on it. And sometime between now and when you come forward to receive communion, I'll invite you to write on the back of the card the name of someone or some place or something in this life where you believe an alleluia is needed. For many years, it has been the practice of the church, not just this church, but the, the whole church, to... During the season of Lent, which is the next season in front of us, the other turning point of transfiguration between Epiphany and Lent, it's been the practice of the church to refrain, to fast, from using the word Alleluia during the season of Lent. That means that today we have opportunity to sing and say our Alleluia's as if we are going up the mountain, waiting for the joy that is coming. We also have opportunity to recognize that sometimes life makes Alleluia very hard to say, impossible to sing, feeling as if we have lost our Alleluia altogether. When you come up for communion, I'll invite you to place that Alleluia card in the box with the name or names on it. And we'll close those boxes during the season of Lent, and our Alleluia's will remain buried in them until on Easter our Alleluia's rise again in some way that you will have to wait to see, promising only that they will be brighter than the sun in the sky and brighter than Jesus on the mountain. I doubt any of us can explain the transfiguration today, but I can promise you this, that whether you are on your way up the mountain or on the way down, whether you are at a point in your life where alleluias are easy to find and sing or whether it seems as if they have gone forever. We can say two things for sure. One, you will find yourself on the other side of the mountain eventually. We all do. And two, the Jesus who shines like the morning star on top of the mountain is the very same Jesus who walks with you in the mud, in the muck, on the hike, as you slip every single step, waiting with you to sing the Allelujahs that are promised to us all. May that promise transform and transfigure you and us, one step on the mountain at a time. Amen.